Spring is here. Admittedly, we're a few days off by the calendar. I, I know the pedants out there will get me, but the hyacinths and tulips are pretty good indicators that spring has sprung. What better time to talk about these passages of plucking and planting? Now, for some of you, as I said, spring is here. You relaxed and smiled, thinking of the beautiful flowers and the refreshing rains. And for others, I saw you tense up. And this is because, of course, that uh, you are preparing for your daily battle, trying to outlast the forces of powerful pollen. In both of our passages today, we are presented with a similar opening line. In Jeremiah, the time is coming, declares Adonai, when I will plant seeds in Israel and Judah. Then in John, the time has come for the human one, or the son of man is the more traditional reading, to be glorified. The time is coming, and the time has come. The original hearers of these words would have been just as divided in their reactions <laughs> as we are to spring's imminent and present arrival. Let's dive into Jeremiah first, shall we? where God promises to plant seeds in Israel and Judah, from which will arise not plants, as we might expect, but people and animals. This is a great metaphor for rebuilding after a destruction, which northern Israel has experienced and southern Judah was then experiencing. Indeed, Jeremiah describes this as a time of digging up, pulling down, overthrowing, destruction, and bringing harm. It was then a time of turmoil, of unrest, and terrible oppression, first from Assyria and then from Babylon. People were scared and defeated, believing that they, had su they were suffering harshly for the mistakes made by generations before them. That's the point of the phrase, sour grapes eaten by parents leave a bitter taste in the mouths of their children. The idea, which comes from biblical warnings to the effect that what you do has impacts on your children and your children's children, has by this point turned into something of an excuse. Hey, we've got it pretty bad here, but it's not our fault. It's our parents and their parents. What can we do? We may as well not follow the commandments. It's not going to come out well for us anyway. Our kids will suffer whatever we do. This is, not surprisingly, not such a good response. In giving up responsibility, the people of Jeremiah's time are ironically causing their actions to impact their children, even as they claim they shouldn't be held responsible for their parents' actions. It's a cycle that Jeremiah is calling out, that an end is in sight, that people can care and should care not just for themselves, but for the generations to follow. I was strongly reminded of this two days ago when I sat down with a group of people who are living into Jeremiah's call by caring for the children of our city. Groups like this one, uh, the, this one was called the Bixby Community Alliance, have sprung up in cities throughout the state as the teachers prepare for a walkout from the schools to protest the ways, the long years without raises and steadily shrinking budgets to education. Now, 
to protest the long years without raises. <laughs> Not just the ways, but those long years indeed. Whether you support these walkouts politically or not, they are coming. And the kids will be affected. There will be kids in our community, in all communities in this state, that will be affected by this. Families who cannot leave their kids at home and cannot bring them to work either, that were counting on the school. This group, the Bixby Community Alliance and others like it, are trying to find a way for the community to care for children when we cannot as individuals. Churches, nonprofits, and businesses across the city are offering to host kids for the time of the walkouts, neither in support nor in opposition to the teachers, but to support the kids, to give them a safe place to go. There's a bit of uncertainty about it all, too. The walkouts may last up to five weeks, which is a long time to be without a regular school schedule. Now, up to five weeks is a long time, and it is a big headache of disruption. But together, we will be able to care for the community. In Jeremiah's day, though, whatever plans the people had to care for the future were completely nullified by the destruction and disorder of exile. Jeremiah says, this destruction, this destruction isn't the end. This destruction caused by the poor choices of the people as a whole has led to the ground being churned up, much like a plow churns up the soil. God sees the destruction and is promising to plant the people anew, both in Israel and in Judah, to reconnect them with their roots after having been separated for so long. Moreover, God promises that the regrowth in the future is just as certain as the memory of the destruction that preceded it. Just as certain as the memory is the regrowth for the future. Unlike many of the covenants before, this covenant, this new covenant, in this time of regrowth, is one that will not be broken by people, that cannot be broken by the people. For it is a covenant written on their very selves, from their guts to their hearts. Teaching each other to know God will not be necessary, since God's presence will be felt from the least to the greatest, and their sins forgotten, as only God can do. The mess, then, that humanity has created, God is causing to be repurposed for good. Perhaps... You recall the terrible devastation that was wrought here in Oklahoma and throughout the Southern Plains in the 1920s and 30s, as farmers new to the region tore through the native grasslands to cultivate wheat and corn, which used a lot more water. When the drought of 1931 struck, these water-loving plants were not able to survive, and the fertile soil of the plains came unstuck and blew off the land with every wind storm. Just one of those storms, just one of those storms, striking on April 14, 1935, removed an estimated three million tons of topsoil. And the topsoil was found as far away as Washington, D.C. and New York City. Even farmers who understood the region and raised crops and livestock that worked with the climate were affected too. 
Dust doesn't care about your particular practices. It covers your crops, inundates your house, and even causes health concerns for everyone forced to breathe the grit. This is what happens when we look after our own interests without regard for others. Greed tends to blow up in our faces and affect even those who are acting responsibly. This is what could have happened to Israel and Judah. The people could have been blown away forever to Assyria and Babylon, to Egypt and Persia, except for God's action to replant them. It would be 80 and more years from Jeremiah's promise before the Jewish people returned to their homeland. But it happened just as God promised it would. Jeremiah reminds us of God's promise of rebirth and growth, even in the midst and aftermath of destruction and devastation. And in John, Jesus takes this promise a step even further. Here Jesus says, here is the time, it is the time for the glorification of the human one, the Son of Man. He spent 12 chapters, three years of ministry, however you want to count it, saying, the time is coming, the time is coming, the day of the Lord is coming. And now, finally, the time is here. Surely the disciples are hanging on every word. It's time, it's time, it's time, it's time. But does Jesus step forth Declare the violent overthrow of Rome, a return of self-rule to the Jews in Palestine, a political posting for Jesus as the Terran emperor. No. Instead, Jesus proclaims his upcoming death and resurrection with the touching parable of a grain of wheat needing to fall to the ground and die in order to regrow and bear much fruit. These people, expecting a cry to rise up in rebellion, hear instead a proclamation of an impending death, followed by a call to follow in Jesus' way, a way that leads to death, but also to life beyond death. Jesus says, those who love their lives will lose them, and those who hate their lives in this world will keep them forever. It's like this. If you've taken the easiest path your whole life, following the crowd as it moves, planting the same crops over and over again, stripping the soil of its nutrients, you will reap only the natural consequences of your actions, which is death. If you say, no, there is a better way, and stand up for your neighbors, showing God's love, following Jesus' radical way of truth-telling and glorifying God by your actions, then you will have made the world better and lived into the true eternal life, the true kingdom of God. To live with the grain is paradoxically to stand against those who go with the flow. To live with the grain is to stand paradoxically with those, uh, against those who go with the flow. To say that only together can we be 
what God is calling us to be. Instead of plowing soil again and again, God calls us to reconnect with the roots of each other, growing stronger from our interconnections. Just like Jeremiah's message was not to Judah only, but to the people of the north and the south. And so too is Jesus' message not just to the Jews, but these Greeks who asked after him. And through them, us, the whole world, you, sitting here today. Now is the chance for you to live with the grain to answer to God's call to care for one another, to plant seeds for the future rather than plucking up whatever you can glean for yourself alone. Live with the grain, my friends, and you too shall grow in Christ's love. May God reconnect you with your nourishing roots. May Christ guide you in flourishing growth. May the Holy Spirit bear much fruit in you. Amen.